Brought to you by the Mary Christie Institute, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Institute. And I'm Dana Humphrey, the associate director of the Mary Christie Institute, and we're the hosts of the Quadcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Quadcast. I'm Dana Humphrey. Today, we continue our series on student-led advocacy and young adult mental health policy with Carson Domi. Hi, Carson. Great to have you back. So glad to be here. I feel like we haven't talked in a while, so I'm really excited to be able to do this with you today. I know. Me too. And just a reminder for our listeners, Carson is a recent high school graduate. He is attending the University of Texas, Austin in the fall, and he leaves in two weeks. Congratulations, Carson. We're so excited for you. I'm going to turn it over to you to do our guest intro today. Great. Thank you so much. So joining us today on the Quadcast, we have Joseph Sexton, who is a youth mental health advocate and senior at Vanderbilt University, studying cognitive science, math, and public health. Just last month, Joseph was awarded the Jed Foundation Student Voice of Mental Health Award. Congratulations and welcome to the Quadcast, Joseph Sexton. Thank you, Carson, for the warm introduction. This is so exciting. I'm happy to be here. Well, thank you so much for not only taking the time to connect when we chatted previous to this podcast, but for also sharing your wealth of knowledge with us here today. Kind of to start off, what drew you to become involved with mental health advocacy and research? Yeah, so I think this is probably the status quo for most young people that are involved in this type of work is personal experience, right? So for me, I guess I'd always had an interest in psychology and mental health. So going way back, into middle school. I had to do this mandatory science fair project. And my go-to, I did I did a project on peer pressure and this little fun group project, basically, with my friends. And then shortly thereafter, I actually was diagnosed with Tourette syndrome, which, you know, now's kind of a good time to introduce anyone listening. <laughs> Tourette syndrome's a neuropsychiatric condition where people have these things called tics, which are involuntary motor tics or the movements or vocal tics. So for example, the snorting that I just did. And it has a lot of comorbidities. So around the same time I was diagnosed with Tourette syndrome in eighth grade, that was 2014 or 15, I also developed pretty intense OCD. And I was entering high school at that time. So it was very, very confusing. And maybe this is something we can talk about more later handling both transition as a young person, just on other scales. So for example, middle school, high school, high school to college, and then simultaneously dealing with other co-occurring issues in mental health. And I fortunately had a mentor in high school. His name was Logan. And he, uh, when I entered high school as a freshman, he was a junior and he was super successful. So he ended up being voted senior class president. He was captain of the swim team. And he had Tourette syndrome. So he was assigned to me as a sort of mentor for understanding how to go about explaining to teachers, explaining to peers, and feeling comfortable in my own skin. But despite that, he was such a mentor to me. He was struggling with his own things. And I wasn't necessarily aware of that. And when he died by suicide early in his senior year of high school, it was just, I mean, it was devastating. 
And at that time, I knew that I was really interested in science and research. That The first science fair in middle school must have really given me the bug because I kept doing it. And that was what motivated me to decide that I really wanted to focus on mental health. Wow. Well, thank you very much for sharing that story. And I can tell you personally that, you know, losing one of my closest friends, that question, you know, why sticks with you for so long. Would you mind talking to the audience about some of the awesome work that you've gotten to do on the campus at Vanderbilt when it comes to the mental health reform group you started there, as well as the critical psychiatry conference that you founded? So I think when I came to Vanderbilt, first of all, what I would say is that I took my first year just to get my bearings. And Carson, I know you're headed to college now, which is so exciting. And the advice I gave you was to just take your first year and get comfortable and give yourself the space and mental well-being to maybe be like more active in your later years. So I give that as a caveat because there's this paradox in a lot of mental health advocacy where a lot of us young people doing this work are doing it because of lived experiences and you want to make sure that you're in a good place before you're helping others. Now, beyond that, what I would say is going into my sophomore year, at that point I decided this was something I really wanted to invest in just in terms of mental health advocacy broadly. But something that is a bit tough is that we have been putting in a lot of energy maybe without seeing the tractable gains that we've wanted. So the big thing on every college campus with mental health advocacy is going to be reducing stigma and saying, you know, like, let's talk. But the thing is that it's great that stigma reduction is happening and it still does need to be actively happening. But the fact of the matter is that 20 years ago, stigma was so much worse than it is now. Now it's like I could be watching a movie or playing video games with a bunch of guys and it's not as taboo to talk about mental well-being. But what we're still seeing is, you know, an increased suicide rate over the past 20 years, even as stigma has been reduced amongst young people. And so this was what made me want to start a group on campus that was less about just this sort of abstract, we need to reduce stigma and change culture and more about what are the actionable things that are happening in policy and in research and in funding that we could improve upon. And so that's why I started this mental health reform group. And this group focuses more on critical psychiatry. Critical psychiatry is, you know, for a brief explanation, this movement that's been more fringe and academic that is ultimately pointing out flaws in how we currently approach mental health care. So there's so many different controversies in terms of mental health care, talking about topical issues. Everyone's been talking about 988 lately, and it's this big thing where it's simultaneously fantastic that we have made these resources more accessible and it's now raising these conversations around the ethics of, say, involuntary hospitalization. And so we're talking about these serious issues. And I think we're talking about it in a way that's more involved and actionable than talking about like a broader stigma reduction. Although, of course, these things need to be happening in tandem. And on that note of critical psychiatry, this is really something that I was fostered into at Vanderbilt, where I came in as super 
maybe you'd say like starry-eyed freshman, and I was a neuroscience major, and I was so excited to have this ultimate research goal of, oh my gosh, I want to find this antidepressant chemical cure for depression. And I was privileged to get to take classes with, yes, neuroscientists, but also psychologists and historians and anthropologists that all work in the field of mental health. And what I really took in was that these critical perspectives are probably the future because what young people are going to realize is that we've been sitting here for 60 years looking to find some sort of cure or massive like structural improvement for mental health. But the fact of the matter is that things just aren't better today. And so reform and looking at things critically and seeing how we can change it both in terms of research prerogatives and the science and in terms of how we're just discussing it in general is something that I've really taken to heart. We're kind of wondering like as activists, one good way to reduce the suicide rate, if I'm being frank, if we know that a lot of this is attributable to poverty, one actionable way to reduce the suicide rate, if apparently stigma reduction isn't working all that well, would be, you know, providing welfare systems so that fewer people did not have access to insurance or were able to pay rent consistently or what have you. Because what we do know is that confers increased risk. It's just that we don't seem to be talking about it as much. And I'm I'm not entirely sure why, but well, actually, you know what, I imagine a few reasons why. But it's this shift towards like something that needs to be a broader conversation and understanding how mental health is in fact not separable from sociopolitical circumstances. So this is all to say that yeah, my work is more involved with these types of critical perspectives because it's just something that I like truly, truly believe in and feel invested in. And so this Vanderbilt Critical Psychiatry Conference is the fruition of that. It was seeing that I had professors in different subjects talking about the same things. I wanted them all together and I proposed just last summer 2021, big email thread. And I said, guys, what if we all just got on a, on a Zoom call together? One of the professors responded saying, that would be great, but why don't we just make it like a public event? And from there, it just snowballed. And we ended up having this online, I called it a conference. It was really like a one-day summit that pivoted to online because of Omicron. And it just ended up being a big success. And so it was just professors, activists, students really highlighting that this is a movement across different levels where that needs to be happening across different levels and having people talk about these more controversial issues and what we can shift and envisioning this sort of like radical change and how we're approaching mental health. Oh, I'm just going to cut in here quickly, Joseph, because I think a, that was so interesting. And thank you for going into all of that. And congratulations on all the work that you've done. I think it's so fascinating to hear you talk about the political and economic influences on mental health, like the social determinants of mental health. We at MCI talk all the time about what is causing this increase in mental health issues among college students. And I think everybody has their like pet reason for why are these increases happening? But depression and anxiety have just gone up and up and up over the past 15 years. And we've just seen that data. So that's such an inter- interesting perspective on that as well. 
So coming from an administrator's perspective, or what would you say to an administrator to help them better address students' mental health on college campuses, maybe from that lens of political and economic influences? I guess the first disclaimer has to be that there are not enough therapists, psychologists, forms of counseling in the United States, period. In colleges, you know, I think it's funny. You take like Vanderbilt and it's like, oh my gosh, Vanderbilt admits all these students because, oh my gosh, they're these change makers. And every college wants the change makers at their their school. So they are actively recruiting these students that were really active in high school and promoting positive change, (laughs) once they get to their campus, we're going to be looking for things to critique. And so I bring this up just because for administrators listening, I know that it's like a, it's a tough battle to fight because the fact of the matter is you're never going to have enough supply for the demand that is college student mental health. And so what I think is going to help maybe even more than that, and getting at these like broader social contexts. We've talked a lot about, or in that case, responding to mental illness, excuse me. But what if we focus on preventing mental illness from occurring in the first place by fostering a really happy campus? And so when we think about that, Vanderbilt has a model that I sort of recommended to, or at least bragged about to all my friends at other schools, which is that before you even see a therapist at Vanderbilt, unless you're in a situation of crisis, you schedule through this separate office called the Office of Student Care Coordination. And these are people mostly from social work backgrounds. And they'll connect you with the Vanderbilt Counseling Center or with the therapist if that's appropriate for you. But because university counseling centers, just broadly speaking, really aren't designed to handle super long-term clientele, they have to be more responsive to the rapid and changing and oftentimes short-term needs of students. What the Office of Student Care Coordination is doing is making sure that you can connect with a counselor that maybe meets your needs more perfectly. So the other thing that you're going to hear as a university administrator is, oh my gosh, there is just the diversity amongst the counseling staff, which is certainly important. And Vanderbilt, as you know, another exemplar, has, I think, made really, really good strides on that point. But you're never going to be able to meet all of the different demographic dynamics of your campus. So the OSCC is doing, that Student Care Coordination Center, they are connecting students with people that they can work with off campus. I'm looking for someone with this approach to therapy that has a background in this, and that takes this kind of insurance and preferably like (laughs) I wouldn't have to Uber there, like something within walking distance and partially by grace of living in Nashville, which is a good city with a good enough infrastructure for this type of thing. They connected me with a list of providers that met my needs. And furthermore, they're very available to help you with broader issues. So especially thinking about like first gen low income students and talking about this increased risk of suicide that they're going to face given the ramifications of poverty. If you talk to FGLI students, I think that frequently the challenge is like navigating systems that you don't necessarily have anyone to turn to to help you navigate. So how do you go about finding a place and like getting renter's insurance for when you're going to live off campus for the first time? Or how do you go about starting to get ready to like get a driver's license? And the OSCC is really good at connecting people with resources in the community 
that are going to be appropriate for them. So I think that's what I would say. I would also say just listening to students. So if students say that there is an issue with XYZ from you know this sort of like social or cultural standpoint, whether you think it's there or not, they are experiencing it. And so I think just incorporating student feedback in these these sort of like topical affairs, you have your student advisory boards, don't just have them for, for looks, listen to what they're saying. And yeah, I think those are some of the biggest things that you can do, just diversifying our conversations. So it's not just about response, but it's also about just culture and what is brooding discontent on your campus in the first place. I think it's so important that you address that because I know that that's something talking to a couple of different people in academia, that that's such a big need. So I'm really glad that you highlighted that for administrators. You know, I've only known you for about a month and a half now. And something that I've learned is you're always up to something. So I'd love to hear about some exciting projects that you have coming up that you might be able to share with us. So my main prerogative right now, I I would say sort of like my mission statement as a young person or an advocate is that I really want to like popularize this critical psychiatry framework which, like I mentioned, it's really something that's more fringe and academic right now. So anyone that's listening, if you haven't heard it before, it's, you know, you're not the only one, you're in the vast, vast majority. I think my goal on that note is to popularize this just amongst young people and also bringing a lot of different people to the table so that it's it's not only just a fringe academic topic, but it's also not just an academic topic for psychiatrists to be talking about. It's actually something where we need journalists, historians, young people, definitely people with lived experiences and psychiatrists and social workers and literally people of all different walks of life sitting at the same table to talk about these things together. So needless to say, my main prerogative is still this Vanderbilt Critical Psychiatry Conference and getting things going and exciting to hopefully have that as a sort of touchstone for critical psychiatry, especially here in the US. It's more prominent in the UK. And that's something that I, you know, feel comfortable saying that I could invest <laughs> my life in, like this this movement building. So that that's the main thing I'm excited for in the next critical psychiatry conference. It, it's gonna be so much, I hope like bigger, better recruiting. Since online went last year, you know, we'll do online hybrid again this coming year, recruiting the biggest names in critical psychiatry to join us and give talks to give just the most informative introduction or engaging discussion on this evolving conversation. So that's my main thing. And hopefully the second event will be held early in 2023. And yeah, that's probably the big thing I'm involved with is just helping to propagate critical psych as a movement primarily in that way. So thanks so much for explaining that. And I'm so curious to learn more about the critical psychology conference and critical psychology in general. So I will definitely be looking up that term later and doing a deep dive. So before we say goodbye, I just wanted to give you a chance to say any last comments. If you want to give listeners a place for people to find you, to find information about the conference, anything like that. Yeah. So if you want to learn more about critical psychiatry in particular, there is a website called Madden America, which is all about this stuff. And it's 
from what I've seen, this is a space that is oftentimes filled by people that have been really mistreated by the mental health care system. And so sometimes it can get very, very angsty. If you spend too much time on Reddit, it could get a little bit clouded. But Mad America is a, a resource where all the authors I that I've seen, I have so much respect for them. So that's a good go-to website for current events. There is Conversations in Critical Psychiatry by Dr. I'm going to butcher his name. I think it's Wise Aftab, A-W-A-I-S, first names, last names, A-F-T-A-B. It's talking with all the different figureheads in the field, including people that have written previous forms of the Diagnostic Statistical Manual or DSM, written to diagnose mental illness and their concerns about that system, even as the people that previously ran it. And finally, just if you want to go to the Vanderbilt Critical Psychiatry page to learn more about that specifically, you can find us just at vanderbiltcritpsych.org. Or if you just search Vanderbilt Critical Psychiatry, it'll pop right up. And we also have a page that's just what is critical psychiatry to provide a good introduction with links that you'll need to help you out and kind of get exposed to this type of thing. Thank you so much. Well, this was so great. And you are such a great communicator. So it's no surprise that you won the Student Voice of Mental Health Award. I'll say that. Thank you so much for your time. And Carson, as always, thank you for being our guest host for this episode. Thank you both so much. I'm glad this worked out. It was great to talk. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. This has been The Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org, where you can sign up for our other programs like the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening.